church? Do you feel like you've been at church already? I feel like we have worshipped. Well, today, you're going to get something a little different than what you've gotten from me in the past. Uh, if you've been with us for the last three months, you know that I have been preaching away, uh, and it's been a lot longer than you thought and a lot longer than I thought that I've been here preaching away. And it's occurred to me that in the course of preaching with you and, and being here that I haven't shared a lot of my story. And I think today would be a good day to do that, to share my testimony in some ways. But I'm doing it in a rather interesting fashion because we have a signed text for the lectionary today. I read the psalm passage. I'm going to... Uh, pick up on the John passage in just a moment, and we're going to end with the First Corinthian passage. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to try to tell a bit of my story and weave it into these texts, okay? So let's start with John's gospel. I said last week that in year A of the lectionary, it tends to be Matthew's gospel that we're following, but John's gospel gets kind of positioned through all three years of this cycle. And so today happens to be John's uh, reading from 1 John, if you have your Bibles with you, and I'll pick up at verse 29. So the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 29, and it says this, The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because... He was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. I would not have known him except the one who sent me to baptize with water told me. The man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is he, is he who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is the Son of God. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, What do you want? That's an important question, by the way. Jesus is asking that question of us. What do you want? You might want to underline that question. They said, Rabbi, which means teacher. Where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying and spent the day with him. It was about the tenth hour. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, We have found the Messiah, that is, the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. A name change seems like a good place to start today. It's part of my story, uh, but of course in this text that we've opened with, it's, it's a part of Simon's story. Simon meets Jesus for the first time, and Jesus says to him that you are going to be called Cephas, which is Aramaic, and, and you might have a little notation there that says, or, or 
uh, Peter, which is Greek. So you have Cephas in Aramaic, Peter in Greek. Both of these words mean the same thing. Both of these names mean the same thing. They mean rock. So G- Simon meets Jesus for the first time and he gets a name change. You are now going to be the rock. Something significant is happening here, of course. There's something about name changes. I was born Dustin Robert Nectern. Robert, after my biological father, who my mom tells me was an outgoing and gregarious man, the kind of person that people just naturally gravitated to. But there was another side to him. He was an alcoholic. And when he would drink, he apparently was less likable. I suspect that he was violent. My mom has not shared a lot of those stories of those early days of my life with me, and probably for good reason. And maybe one story's enough. While I was an infant, uh, I was my parents' firstborn, by the way. While I was an infant, um, my mom tells me a story that, that my, my dad was drunk, and he decided in the moment, and I don't know all the circumstances, I don't know all the details that led to this moment, but in the moment he decided he was going to clean his shotgun. And my mom sensed that something was going on in that moment that was dangerous. And so she took me, her infant, into the bathroom of our trailer that we lived in and locked the door. And sometime in the midst of all of that, the shotgun went off and it went through the door of the bathroom. Thankfully, my mom and I were not injured in this, but this was the wake-up call for my mother. I suspect that my mom put up with a lot prior to this. But because she now had the responsibility of this infant, it was the catalyst that helped her to say, this is enough. And so she left. She left my dad. I have no memory of him. And unfortunately, I will never have that option because I later found out that he died from his addiction about the age that I am today. So I don't have the potential to know my father, Robert. But I can't really pretend that he doesn't exist. There were times in my life growing up that he really was kind of oblivious to me. I didn't remember him. I didn't think about him, except for the fact that I carry his name with me. Dustin Robert. But she noticed that it's not Nectarn anymore. Because after my mom left my dad, she met another man, a guy named Jesse Metcalf. Everybody calls Jesse Bud. For my whole life, that's what he's been called by everybody, Bud. She met Bud, and, and he had never been married before, but somehow, even though my mom had this son in tow, He fell in love, and so they got married. His first, my mom's now second marriage, and I have a picture that I have at the house that has me as a little toddler. I was the ring bearer in this wedding. I'm wearing a blue leisure suit, bell bottoms and all. And in the picture, I am not happy. I don't think it had anything to do with the blue leisure suit, but maybe, because I don't know, it was pretty dated. Uh... I think it had everything to do with the fact that I was now probably going to share my mom, who was my whole world at that point, with a man. And so you could understand this was 
maybe not the most enjoyable experience. I have no memory of this, but I just see this picture and I see this little boy that is not happy. But not long after that, I have another memory that comes that is much more happy for me because it is really the first memory, one of the very first memories that I remember to this day. I'm a toddler. I'm in a courtroom. My mom is seated on my left side and my soon-to-be legal father is on my right side. We're in an adoption process. And I remember the judge asking me, do you want Bud Metcalf to be your dad? And I, of course, in that moment, said yes, because everything had changed in my life. He became my adoptive father. He claimed me as his son. He took me on as his very own. I took on his name. So I guess something that I want you to know about me is that when I come across name changes in Scripture, it means something to me. It's not just this thing that happens. It's, just, it's not a part of some fairy tale that, that there's this idea that once we were, that now we are, or once we were, now we can become something. That's not fairy tale to me. That's not some little thing that happens in Scripture and we can quickly move on from it because it represents real change, doesn't it? transformation. Simon, you used to be this person. And whatever that all was, I now need you to know that you are the rock. Well, that's, that's quite a name change, isn't it? Quite a, a destiny change, quite an identity shift for him. Once Simon, now Peter. Once Nectar, now Metcalf. With the name change comes the possibility of something new. And often the foundation of this idea of something new happening in us, this new identity, is the identity or is this thing that we call adoption. When we started this journey together, we were in the book of Ephesians, which seems like a long time ago, doesn't it? October. Oh, it's half a life ago. Uh, I don't know if these words resonated with you when we read them from Ephesians chapter 1. It was the very first week together. Pastor Raul preached that day. But these words were read. I instantly heard them because they mean something to me. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his children through Christ Jesus. Did you hear it? Adopted to be his children. Adoption matters to me. It's not just a theoretical idea. It's real to me, just like the name change is real. It's why I have the name that I do today. It's why I have a living father today. But adoption isn't just for those in this space, and I know there are some of you that have had an experience with adoption as well. It's not just for us. Because if you were listening to Paul, did you hear it's for all of us? Paul says we are all chosen, all picked for adoption to be the children of God. And so each of us in here has had a kind of name change 
whether you really have in your life or not, I need you to understand that for me, there is a kind of name change that all of us, if we claim Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, has been placed on us. Whatever your identity was before you met Jesus, once you met Jesus, you take on the title, the name Christian, little Christ, a reflection of the one who has saved you. To me, this is the highest calling that we have received, the the greatest name change that we can have. Oh, I'm thankful for the name being shifted from Nectarn to Metcalf to what that means for my life. But friends, the most important name change for me is Christian. Christian. Because we've been adopted to carry on this most important identity, the identity of being the children of God. Of course, this comes with the idea of conversion. A moment where we recognize that we are in need of grace. Oh, that thing that God offers us that we haven't earned. That gift that is given to us that we, we don't deserve. Oh, God gives us grace. I was nine years old in the fall of 1985. That really does seem like a lifetime ago. When all of this became real to me, I actually thought I missed my moment. We were attending a Nazarene church in Wyoming at the time, and we were in the midst of a week-long revival. Do you guys remember when we used to do that? Some of you experienced that. I was nine years old, remember? We had wood pews in my church, Uh, but all week long we went to church. And I remember early in the week listening to the preacher It's why, by the way, I like having children in with us, because they hear more than we think. I can't tell you what the sermon was. I can't tell you what the preacher said, but I can tell you I remember this moment distinctly, because as I was listening to the sermon being preached, again, nine years old, all of a sudden my heart is pounding in my chest, and I know that God is moving in my life, and I know Because I had been in church, I know what this means. I need to go to the altar. I need to give my life to Jesus. I knew this. And so the altar call came, and I was scared. But I need you to understand, I wasn't afraid because I was of the idea of confessing. I wasn't afraid because I would be praying to God. That wasn't the fear that I carried as a nine-year-old kid. The fear that I carried was you all. I was seated out there with the people, and I was scared of the people around me. I was terribly shy as a kid. So there I was, knowing that God was speaking to me, but afraid to go down front because I was afraid of what that meant, that I would be observed by people. And so that night, we went home, and I never told my parents this, But I carried this feeling that I had missed my chance because I let my fear win out. I want to say to my young self, and since there are some teenagers in here, um, maybe you can listen in on this. Because I can't speak to my young self anymore, of course. I'd like to say to my young self, it's okay. God can meet you where you are. You don't have to step down front to be met by God. 
God can meet you where you are if you just ask. If you just let him, he'll meet you where you are. So we don't have to let our shyness, we don't have to let our anxiety, we don't have to let our fear of crowds be the thing that prohibits us from making a commitment to God because God can meet us where we need to be met, where it's most comfortable for us. He can find us in that spot. But my young, my young nine-year-old self didn't know that. And so I thought, oh no, I let my fear win out. I, I didn't obey God. We went to the, the revival the next night, and I learned that God is not only gracious, but he's immensely patient with us as well. Because sure enough, I listened to the sermon, and my heart started beating again, and I knew, uh-oh, I got to go. And guess what? I didn't let my fear win out that time. I went down, and I prayed, and I gave my life to Christ. And I went home. I carry this with me. I had to dig it out of my memory box. But I have some really nice penmanship. <laughs> I wrote this in a, diary, in a diary in 1985. Dear diary, misspelled the word. When I got saved, it was really exciting. My heart was pounding so hard, I thought I was going to faint. But after that, I was happy. And Shelly, Shelly was a family friend in the church. Actually, she was the one that invited my family to this Nazarene church. She was really nice to me. But she was always nice to me. It just felt she was nicer. Can you hear a nine-year-old writing like this? My mom and dad were happy for me too. It was really nice when I got saved. I was really happy for me too. Now, it's not fine poetry, but do you hear echoes to the psalm that I read at the start of the service, Psalm 40? The psalmist says at the very beginning of that psalm that, that I waited patiently on you, God. And I, and I think to myself, well, my story is God was waiting patiently on me. But did you hear the language that followed that, that, that there is this, this pit this mud, this slime that, that we're being pulled out of that God is saving us, and I identify with that. I think, I think that comes out in, in what I was writing there, that actually, even though I was nine years old and hadn't been living a life of crime, I was very dutiful and, and obedient as a kid, but still I recognize that, oh, I've done things in my life that, that are sinful, and I need God in my life. I need him to be a part of my life. And then in, the outcome of that was what? Happiness, did you hear it come out? Joy, the joy of salvation. A nine-year-old meets God and realizes that God is patient and God is gracious and God is kind and God has a place for me and oh, the happiness, the joy that comes out of that. And friends, that's why I preach the way that I preach because I think that's what people need to hear. There are some preachers out there that, that think that they need to tell people how bad they are. They need to do all of that to get them into the kingdom. And I just don't, it doesn't resonate with me because of my own story. It's joy. That's why I preach the way that I preach. It's how I come to scriptures. And every time I think of you when I stand up or anybody that I'm preaching to, I'm thinking of the joy of the Lord. Oh yes, there are hard things that we have to go through. We have to repent. We have to give up our sin. We need to walk this path of holiness. But friends, it's joyful, isn't it? Oh, when we taste God, it is good. We sang about the honey today. It's good. But I want to go back to that pit idea from Psalm 40. The mud or the slime of our lives isn't 
always the result of our own sins. We have to repent for our own sins, but we carry the legacy of other people's sins in our lives, don't we? And so I think of my biological father. And I am grateful that I don't carry the mire of his life in my life. And the reason for that is the church. I never was tempted, I never walked the path that my father walked because I had the church. The church gave me a different path to walk. So it's why I love the church. It shaped me, it's loved me, it saw something in me that I never thought was in me. The world sees that needs to see that kind of church, doesn't it? The kind of church that invites all the broken, the insecure, those that are struggling, that invites them and says, oh, we have a new identity for you. We have solid ground for you to stand on. What is this solid ground? It's this faith that we're given, this adoption, this new name, this new identity. Oh, I want people to experience that. I want to be a part of a people that want that, so that more people can join their voices to that of the psalmist. Did you hear these words? Many, O Lord, my God, are the wonders you have done, the things you planned for us no one can recount. Were I to speak and tell of them, they would be too many to declare, because our God is that good, isn't he? Between my nine-year-old self and my 46-year-old self, there's been a lot of life. A lot of stories that I could tell today. A lot of ways that God has shaped me. I think of meeting my future wife at college. The reason that that happened is because I changed my major. I changed my major because of a mission trip, my very first mission trip to Costa Rica. And on that very first mission trip to Costa Rica, I sensed God speaking to me in a way I'd never experienced in my life so that I changed my major when I went back to university and met this incoming freshman. <laughs> what an adventure we've been on. I think of stories that I could tell you of my firstborn son that came early eight weeks early, and how I held that little one in my hands. And for the first time in my life, even though I'd grown up in the church and thought I knew what God's love was, it changed in me when I felt and held my son in my hands and knew that in that moment, I would freely offer my life for this one. Oh, that made me think about God's love in a new, profound way. I think of how Liv and I had to experience what it means to be utterly dependent on God when our second child tried to come at 24 weeks and how we were just there we couldn't do anything and yet God was faithful I think of the adventures that we've been on where we've gone to places all over the world because of the church and how that has changed our lives and how we see the world. I think of going to the university to be a chaplain, never thinking that that's what we were going to do. I think of coming to New York, which was not on our radar. You're a long ways away from Idaho. <laughs> I don't know if you know that. Further than you even think. Talk to Eric about it. We, he, it's a long ways over there. And here we are. 
All of this, for me, has been a journey of learning what it means to live in relationship to God, which Paul picks up on in our epistle reading that's assigned for today in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul says this after his introduction to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. From 9 to 46, it's trying to figure out what in the world is this holy life all about. What does it mean to be called to be holy people? What does it mean to experience sanctification? All along, I could tell you stories of the ways that God has shaped and formed me because of these experiences of life, where God is chipping away at the rough edges of my life, asking me to become more like Jesus. Oh, some of them are, are amazing. I could tell you some amazing things that happened overseas. Oh, I saw God in new ways. That's amazing, but there are also some really challenging things that we've been through. Where God, in each, each location, in each place, I've recognized as I look back through the years, oh, that's the path of holiness. Not that I always took the right path, mind you, but God's gracious, God's patient, isn't he? But I look back and I go, oh, that's the sanctified life. That's what God's calling us to. I think about that, and I think about you. And I think the gift that the sanctified life is for us as Christians is that it means that we're not wasting our lives. You want to live your life well? I certainly want to live my life well. Then friends, I think the answer is here. I think it's this sanctified life. I think it's the life of holiness. I think it's the life of becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. I can't imagine what the future is going to hold for us. I just know that I'm not a Christian today just to get to heaven. I, I'm sure that life after death is going to be amazing. And maybe you have an easy time of imagining what that might look like, but I have a hard time imagining what life after death is going to look like. But friends, we have life right now, don't we? And I want to know that we're living life well right now. I don't want to waste this time. I don't want to waste today. I don't want to waste tomorrow. I don't want to waste next year or the next 10 years. I want to know that I have lived my life well, and I want to live it well with others. And I'm sure you do as well. I think this is the gift of the sanctified life. It is the path of living life well. So, I'm watching the clock better today because last week, um, poor Blair Carney got to work three minutes late because I was long-winded. <laughs> That's not good. <laughs> so, I need to wrap this up. You've heard a bit of my story today, just bits and pieces of it, not the whole life, of course. And there's so much to tell, but friends, it's not just my life that matters, and it's not just my story that matters, is it? 
because each of you, just like I said to our little kids, God is writing a story in their lives, and he's wanting to do the same for you. He is doing the same. He's writing his story in your life. And so these words from 1 Corinthians that Paul writes are not just for me, but they are for you as well. He, God, will keep you strong to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God, who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, is faithful. He's faithful to us. He's faithful because he chooses us and he's adopted us. He's faithful because he saves us. And he's faithful because he is sanctifying us. Ah, it's good news. We sing that today, right? It's good news that we have. Praise team's going to come forward, and we are going to close with a song on the goodness of God. And I hope that you have tasted the goodness of God this morning and that you want to sing this out from the depths of your heart because you have a story, a testimony as well. And so let's sing about what God is doing in our lives. God, thank you. Thank you for this good day, this day set apart for corporate worship where we gather from all the various places that we've been this week, ages and all sorts of different backgrounds. Here we are in this one place as one family. And in fact, it's not just us, but we're a part of this extended family that is worshiping you all over the globe and and through all time. Oh God, what a joy it is to be here today, to do our part. So as we come to the end of our time together in worship, oh, we just want our hearts and our minds to be on you. You are good. Thank you for your goodness in our lives.